You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and today we're bringing you an interview with Benno Schmidt. Benno served as president of Yale University and the dean of Columbia University Law. He also spurred the renaissance of City University of New York as a trustee. 30 years ago, Chris Whittle convinced Benno to join him and together they built Edison Schools, a pioneer in the charter school movement. Three years ago, they founded Whittle School and Studios, and this month they've opened schools in Washington, D.C. and Shenzhen, China. Let's listen in to a conversation Tom had with Benno and learn more about his 40 years of education leadership. Benno Schmidt, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Thank you. How'd you get to Yale the first time around? Uh, well, I was lucky enough to um, uh, go to two very good schools uh, as, a, as a kid. I went to St. Bernard's School in New York, which is a, a, an English school run by Englishmen at the time, and very, very strong in the humanities. A lot of, a lot of reading and writing. A lot of Shakespeare, mm. a lot of, of English poetry. We actually learned more about British history than American at St. Bernard's, but they also started the study of Latin in the third grade. So wow. you, you picked up Latin and you were able to read uh, Julius Caesar and, you know, some of the other basic Latin texts uh, by the time you're in the seventh and eighth grades. And then I went to Exeter, which, of course, was then as it is now, uh, a very, very fine, uh, it was then all boys high school. And that Exeter had some really superb teachers, particularly in uh, history and in English, which were the subjects that um, appealed to me the most. I went to Yale from Exeter. Yale was the only college I applied to <laughs> back in those days. Uh, when I started at Yale, it was 1959. You know, back in those days, a lot of people only applied to one college. But I wanted to do Yale because, uh, for two reasons, uh, Yale was the strongest then in history with, uh, had people like Van Woodward and John Blum and, uh, Ajo Hallborn and, uh, just a whole very distinguished group in, in history. And then so many of my Exeter classmates were going to Harvard <laughs> that I wanted to, to see a new group of people, so I wanted to go to Yale instead. And it turned out to be a very good experience for me. I'm, I majored in history, which is, uh, was then Yale was number one, and it is now. And I became very interested in the history of the South. Uh, I worked with uh, Van Woodward and and John Blum on 20th century, 19th and 20th century American history, and was able to, through that, we read, you know, Hofstadter and Luchtenberg and Bill Luchtenberg and some of the other sort of standard treatments of 20th century work on Roosevelt, you know, Schlesinger's uh, books on, on FDR. And I kind of absorbed what, what I think of as the progressive tradition in American politics, which was sort of represented. I mean, uh, you know, Richard Hofstadter wrote about that in The Age of Reform in particular, but in other books as, as well. And with um, political leaders like 
Theodore Roosevelt, especially to some extent Woodrow Wilson, uh, and then of course FDR. And I developed an, an interest in and a sort of a commercial, a, a personal interest and commitment to the pro, what I think of as the progressive tradition in American politics, uh, to which I added, you know, it was the early 60s. And so it was the it was the beginning of the really strong age of civil rights reform. And uh, so we were at the very beginning of that movement. And I developed a big interest in because both my parents were from Texas and I had spent from the age of 14 on, I spent every summer doing construction work uh, in the South. So I, 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 I knew quite a bit about the South, even though I grew up in New York. I spent summers in Mississippi and Alabama, Georgia, North Carolina, Texas, doing work mostly for pipeline, gas pipeline construction work. And so I got, I, I, I was quite interested in the civil rights reform and the impact it would have on what was then when I was working down far south in the summers, it was strictly segregated. There were no blacks on any of the jobs that I worked on, all white. And um, the residential segregation was pretty, <laughs> was pretty absolute in those in those southern states. I, that progressive tradition, I think, is what led me to be interested in law. And I went to Yale Law School and was fortunate enough to, uh, to find it really interesting. And for the first time, really, in my life, at law school, I really worked hard. I had not worked very hard in, in the college. Uh, but I worked hard in law school and did, did very well and wound up then, after I graduated from law school, my first job was uh, to be a, a law clerk for Chief Justice Earl Warren. And I spent a year That's hard work. clerking with Earl Warren. Uh, it was the height of the Warren court. Right. You know, it was, Warren was kind of in his heyday there in the mid-60s. Hugo Black was still... Strong Brennan uh, was very, you know, had come on and was very influential. And so I, I've developed a big interest in constitutional law, working for Warren. And after that, spent a couple of years in the Justice Department. And then I was trying to decide where, what law firm to join in New York. I had, uh, it was going to be either Cravath or Debevoise. And while I was trying to make up my mind, Columbia called me out of the blue and said, come up and spend a day with us. We'd like to meet you. I did. I spent a day and they offered me a teaching job and said I could start out teaching constitutional law from the beginning. So uh, I did that, thinking, not knowing whether I would do that for more than a couple of years. Right. But uh, I tried it. I liked it. You ended uh, up becoming dean there. Yeah, ended up becoming dean. And um, um, got tenure in my third year at Columbia before I was 30, so they treated me very well and um, became dean. And then my alma mater called and 
asked me to be the president of Yale, and so uh, that's what I did. How long were you at Yale? Uh, seven years. How do you think about that work? What, what were your priorities? What were you trying to accomplish there? Yale, when I arrived, is, was a very different place than it is now. Uh, now the endowment is almost $30 billion. When I arrived, it was just $1 billion. Uh, and the place was, it was all too evident that the, that the physical plant at Yale was falling apart. Uh, it had mostly been built uh, in the early 1900s and in the 20s and 30s, and there'd been no maintenance since then, so all the roofs were starting to leak and the windows uh, not working, the plumbing was... So I, I asked an engineering firm uh, to come in and survey all of Yale's buildings and do reports on each building, what needed to be done. And they came back and said that there was approximately $5 billion of <laughs> deferred maintenance that urgently needed doing so that the place didn't continue to deteriorate. And I, my, I, my, the great struggle uh, of my presidency, the great challenge, was to figure out how to fund this massive capital investment in the, to keep the buildings from falling down while not starving uh, the operating budget so that the place could, could can, you know, continue to function at a high level. And that was a huge, huge challenge because the, the numbers were so big. Uh, and at that time, the endowment was just totally inadequate to, to deal with it. Uh, since then, of course, uh, Yale's had the highest growth endowment of any university in the country, as it did in my time as president. Um, so that's been very, that's been a very fortunate development for Yale, and it's given them the wherewithal to really rebuild the campus. Um, and it's in pretty good shape now. Uh, while we're talking about universities, you got, um, you got involved in uh, City University of New York as a yeah, that was much later. That was around 1997, 98. Rudy Giuliani, who had always been an admirer of the Edison Project and actually wanted, wanted Edison to come into New York City, uh, but he couldn't persuade the school board to do that. Um, he uh, had known of my work at Edison and he, he asked me to chair a task force to look at CUNY, which he thought needed, either needed to be reformed or should be shut down. <laughs> and um, because the graduation rates were very, very low, uh, the place was sunk and just absolutely buried in remediation of students who weren't ready for college coming out of the New York City public schools. And uh, so graduation rates were low. Academic standards were very low. The dropout rate was high. So I studied CUNY hard uh, for about a year and a half and wrote a, wrote a long report 
which to my surprise, the governor, who had nothing to do with my appointment, uh, the governor read and liked enough that he made me chairman of the board and told the trustees to put my report into, uh, into, into, into action. And we did that. I was chair for 15 years, and we were able to put almost all the reforms that I recommended, we were able to, uh, to make them happen. And the result was what most people describe as the renaissance of CUNY. Um, higher graduation rates, much higher academic standards, much, much better, higher quality faculty appointments. Um, we were able to raise much more money from private sources than CUNY had historically been able to have. So we had the resources to really invest. And, and um, of course, uh, in that period, you know, in the early part of the 2000s, a lot of universities were hurting. So we were able to hire faculty that um, would otherwise have been hired by the best universities in the country. So the young faculty we brought in were very, very high quality. And we were able to just lift the place up quite, quite uh, dramatically. So I was chairman of the board there under four different governors. Uh, you know, because the when the Democrats came in, um, you know, I was appointed by Pataki, a Republican, and got involved in it in the first place because of Giuliani. Uh, but then when Democrats came in, they, they, they had liked enough what they were seeing at CUNY and they were hearing from their constituents that CUNY was really working, you know, much better. Uh, and so the Democrats, uh, backed me just as much as the Republicans did. And it was, uh, so it was a real bipartisan, became a bipartisan reform effort. You know, sort of started out as a Republican-led effort, but it, it worked, and its benefits were obvious enough to everybody that uh, the Democrats embraced it. Um, no, it's a, great, it's a great turnaround story. Yeah, and it's a very important institution, you know. I mean, it's the third largest public, inst uh, public system in the country, has almost 300,000 uh, degree candidates uh, and another 250,000 uh, people who are in various, you know, adult education courses or registration courses, one area or another. So it has a huge impact, and it really is the university for the poor and the immigrants uh, in New York, in New York City, of whom there are so many. Um, so it's. You know, the Economist magazine called it the American Dream Factory. <laughs> and uh, that's what, in many ways, it is, because it it gives poor kids a chance to get a, an education that they, they, you know, they could never afford to go to Columbia or, or Yale or, or whatever. Uh, but CUNY, 80% of CUNY's graduates have no debt at all when they graduate. That's uh, great. So about 30 years ago, you made an entrepreneur named Chris Whittle. 
Yes, I was at Yale, and, and I had become increasingly distressed by the fact that at both Columbia and at Yale, which are, you know, certainly two of the finest universities in the world, uh, educating students, you know, the highest quality students of the great, with the greatest promise to, you know, to lead successful lives and so on. I could walk in two blocks from either CUNY or, I mean, from either Columbia or Yale, because Columbia's up in Harlem, uh, uh, and find public schools where the students were very poor and had almost no chance of, of even graduating from high school. And this was a time when um, a movement called uh, Reimagining Government was beginning to take form, and the Democratic uh, Progressive Unit, which Bill Clinton was actually active in, uh, was a big proponent of this reinventing government idea, which was the idea that if you brought in the private sector into public services uh, and you, you managed it correctly, that often the private sector could do the job more efficiently uh, and, and be of higher quality. And so um, Chris Whittle uh, came to see me at Yale, and he had concluded that this reinventing government idea of using the private sector could be particularly effective in public education. And the charter school movement was just getting started at that time. And he thought that a private enterprise like Edison turned out to be could be a big mover in the charter. And so we, we built and managed more charter schools than anybody. Uh, and we were real pioneers in that area. Uh, so, so today you're chair of the advisory board of Whittle School and Studio. It's yep. a, so how do you think about the opportunity? What's Well, I think the opportunity is, is very special. Uh, in the first place, a network of campuses, a network of schools closely integrated has vastly more capacity for innovation uh, than does a single school. A single school just doesn't have the scale or the resources. Yeah. And even a small public school district no, they don't, can't spend they, much on research no, and development. they don't. So K-12 education is probably the least uh, researched, least systematically researched yeah. and developed area. And, and what research exists has nothing to do with... There's not really a strong link to practice or no, to no, education. No. And, the schools, and the schools of education in our public universities are by and large uh, not driving uh, sophisticated, intelligent reform. And so you have this huge sector of American life. It's, uh, you know, the second biggest economically to health care. And uh, it's probably the most important sector in terms of what kind of a society we're going to be 20 or 30 years from now. 
And I would argue that it's largely failing us. You know, it, it really does fail children of color. What Whittle has is the scale when we're, you know, when we're up to 10 campuses, we will be able to invest in the neighborhood of um, $30 million, maybe $40 million in research and development. No one's ever done that on how to, how to do education more effectively, how to do teacher training better, what kind of curriculum works best in math and science, uh, um, how to use technology in an optimal way to strengthen teaching and learning, how to use assessment to inform teachers about what they're doing right, what they're not doing well, uh, what the students really need in real time. Uh, these are all things that are very, that are essentially unknown in American education and that we hope that, I, I hope and believe that Whittle will be able to provide. So I think we have the capacity, I don't think we're there now, but I think as we develop scale, we have the capacity to do research and development that no one else has done. And if we do it intelligently, and I suspect we will, because we've got good, we can attract very high quality talent to this, I think we can be a great force for reform. And the stuff we develop, we're going to share. Uh, so it, it won't only be uh, sort of high tuition private schools that benefit from this. We'll, uh, we'll share all our curriculum innovations and everything else with, uh, with public schools, with the Catholic schools and the, you know, the other religious school communities that, that serve, you know, kids who aren't wealthy at all. Um, and, uh, so I think we can be a, a real, uh, source of reform. Uh, throughout education, uh, and that's why I'm excited about the opportunity and really why I want to be part of it. It sounds like it's a, a global school in that kids will learn several languages and have a several chance to languages. Travel. They and they'll. Uh, uh, I think the most important thing is as the kids get old enough, they'll have the capacity to spend, you know, a half a year or a year uh, in a whittle on a Whittle campus in another country. So we're starting with our two first two schools in, in China and the U.S. I think we'll uh, have quite soon a, a, a campus in India. Uh, we're working hard to get a campus in London. Um, uh, I think we'll be able to get campuses soon in Abu Dhabi and Dubai. So we'll be in the Middle East, India, China, uh, the U.S., uh, hopefully London, uh, Europe. And and the kids who are in the system will have the capacity, and the teachers too, will have the capacity to kind of move around and spend time and really get to know other, live in and get to know other cultures uh, besides the one that they uh, grew up in, and and I think that global experience that they will get with us, along with the language acquisition and the fact that our curriculum is going to emphasize 
what you what we talked about a lot last night the the global competence idea that that the Asia Society uh, and OPEC have have developed. I think this will produce graduates who are very well informed about about global issues and graduates who who understand what it's like to you know come from maybe the United States but spend real time in China and India uh, uh, South America too eventually when we get there and I think this will give our students some educational opportunities and advantages that that a single school just you know uh, right. can't really do sounds like every campus will have a an area of expertise yeah that's right strengths. I mean the cities that we're the cities that we're going to tend to be very very strong centers of excellence in some area for example Shenzhen is probably China it's the Chinese Silicon Valley, and it's really the the part of China where they're doing the most research into artificial intelligence, robotics, and so on. And and uh, Washington D.C. Uh, will be the center there. Will focus on international cooperation, diplomacy. London, when we when we're in London, will focus on architecture and design. Uh, New York, when we get to New York, as I think we will, uh, we'll focus on uh, uh, communications media uh, and uh, sort of media uh, production. And uh, so, and, and we want these centers of excellence to develop things that then can be shared across our campuses in other continents. So the Shenzhen Center on Robotics will come up with ideas and projects that students can work on that, you know, will be shared with the students in Washington and the students that we will eventually have in Delhi or London um, and, and so forth. So I think this idea of centers of excellence is a way that, you know, a single campus can enrich the whole network. Uh, of of campuses around the world, and it's a very promising idea. I think uh, we're we're together with the founding faculty and leadership, and it's really an impressive group. It's it's uh, well, yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that is so attractive about Whittle is our ability to attract talent. Uh, we have had over. 3,000 applications for, for faculty positions for the, you know, the 250 or so that we've hired so far. So we've had 10 applicants, more than 10 applicants for every position. And that means that, you know, if we're wise in the way we choose, we get a faculty of very high quality. And I think it's you know, it's not too surprising that the faculty are interested in this because we offer, again, as a network, geographical mobility because we're a fast-growing system. We can offer them promotion opportunities uh, in our new schools that they would never get in a single school, which is a much more 
uh, as you know, uh, Tom, a much more static environment. Uh, but we'll be hiring new heads, new division heads in, in our new schools, and some of our current people can move up the ladder very quickly uh, if they want. So that and the geographical mobility and the fun of being part of a network, I think, are natural attractors for faculty. Another reason that I think we'll continue to get very large numbers of applicants uh, to look at, which is, of course, you know, a great thing in terms of putting together a great faculty. Benno, thanks for your uh, 40 years of education leadership. Well, it's... Uh, it's sometimes been a struggle, but on the whole, um, I'm very pleased that that's where my career has 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 taken me. Um, and of course, you've been involved yourself, Tom, for for near for for forty years. I think nearly. I think we met at an Edison meeting in '95. Right. Yes. <laughs> so it's been that's a while. It's been a while. Right. Right. Thank you, Benno. Well, thanks, Tom, and. Uh, Good luck in your important work in education. A big thanks to Benno Schmidt for joining us today on the podcast. We appreciate his sector leadership. Whittle schools will use their host cities as classrooms for learning, also known as place-based education. For more on place-based learning, see episode 168 for our discussion with Nate McLennan from Teton Science School. Also, keep an eye out in early 2020, uh, Tom, Dr. Emily Liebtag from our team and Nate will release a new book that they just finalized their manuscript for all about the power of place. You'll definitely want to make sure you grab a copy. That's it for today, listeners. Thanks for tuning in and make sure you rate and review the show so more people can find us. Keep up the hard work and keep innovating. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off.